Voights. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 467. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink. Spooky season. Spooky, spooky. Spooky Lorraine Sink. <laughs> I like Do you that. like my really organic transition into forcing you to talk about spooky season with me? Yep. We're, we're here. We're into it. It's it's happening. This is week twelve of uh, Halloween season of twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah. Um. All of fall is Halloween season. Wait. Can I tell you? And I was excited this morning because last week I couldn't remember all the movies I'd watched, but I've watched so many more. So Ryan, I've made you a list of all the movies I Ooh. have watched for Spooky Season so far. Yes. Okay. Hocus Pocus, which uh-huh. is on Disney Plus. Never uh, seen it. Oh what! I knew, I was I haven't. I know like <gasps> the memes and I've seen the pictures and the baby needs I love to see Bette Hocus Midler Pocus. And, yeah, she can't. She doesn't. Her attention span is like if we can get through the saggy baggy elephant, you know, like I think she'll be captivated. I truly okay. think it's it's a it's a kids appropriate movie. Um, the witches, a kids movie, not for kids. Nice. Uh, Invisible Man, The Craft. Practical mm-hmm. Magic, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, a mm-hmm. true classic. Ichabod Crane. Oh, also on Disney Plus. Adam's Family, the animated series or movie. Is that the most recent one? Yeah, that's the recent one. How um, was it? It was it was cute. I I prefer the live action ones because Angelica Houston is a revelation. Oh yeah. But um, I watched the other two Adam's Family movies, Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values, Rosemary's Baby, Hail Satan, which is a documentary about. I love that. I saw that in the theater. It's it was great. so good. It's so good. Yeah. It's on Hulu right now. It's so crazy. It's about modern day Satanists and. It's fascinating. It's, yeah, it's it's not what you think at all. I saw Ready or Not, the one with the bride who's getting hunted by her in-laws. A great metaphor for getting married. Just kidding. Mm-hmm. I love my in-laws. <laughs> um, American Werewolf in London. And then we watched the 30 Rock Halloween episode. Oh, is that the one with Werewolf Bar Mitzvah? No, no. I wish it were. I have to find that one. This one is just about how all of the male writers befriend Jenna so they can get to a hot girl Halloween party. <laughs> Oh, nice. That, that, that that's good. I haven't watched any <laughs> anything. I think I was telling you when. So, uh, listeners, it was great. There was a this week in Marvel uh, live in person gathering where uh, me and my wife and the baby visited Lorraine and her husband. Yeah. And we socially distanced and ate amazingly delicious cinnamon buns that Lorraine made from scratch, which we just had the last one this morning. We shared it. We were like savoring them. Oh, good. But I was saying to you, Lorraine, that I wanted to do uh, a John Carpenter watch through all, you know, spooky season long. And that's not going to happen. I don't have the time to or brain power to like do it. And I just I started playing. Catherine Grace cried in the background just as you said that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's like, but I love Carpenter. I want to see Prince of Darkness. <laughs> But yeah, I just started playing a game called Wasteland 3, which is really good, and that is probably going to take up my my evenings instead of movie watching. So such is life. Hey, man, we got to make these hard choices. Yeah, hard choices like what to talk about this week, because here on This Week in Marvel, we talk about what's (laughs) happening across Marvel from games, comics, movies, TV, and all kinds of stuff. And first and foremost, we got to talk about New York Comic Con, because it's happening right now. Yes, and there are going to be new limited edition Star Wars and Black Widow variant covers coming uh, to the NYCC Metaverse, which is 
I guess what they're calling Comic-Con this year. <laughs> yeah, because it's, you know, it, it's it's all distant and pre-recorded and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, but you can check out the whole event, the whole shebang of New York Comic-Con at findthemetaverse.com, M-E-T-A-V-E-R-S-E.com. And that's going to be uh, going this weekend. So it's going on right now. It's going to go on until Sunday, October 11th. And there's a lot of cool stuff that you can catch up on. Yeah. And the variant covers are J. Scott Campbell, Glow in the Dark variant for Black Widow number three. And then I really love the John Tyler Christopher variant for Star Wars number seven with Luke Skywalker. And he's got his fancy dancy yellow lightsaber question mark exclamation point. Uh, you can buy those, find out about the merch at findthemetaverse.com, like Lorraine said. And then for panels, well, let's see. This episode goes live on Friday, so we've already had two Marvel panels that have gone out. That's the Women of Marvel panel and the Ten of Swords panel. You can watch them on Marvel's YouTube. You can watch them on findthemetaverse.com. And then today, as the episode goes live, we have a King in Black panel, which is awesome, big Venom panel. And then... The greatest thing of all, oh Marvel's Modoc, the panel. I watched it a couple days ago because I basically was like, hey, Jordan Bloom, the showrunner, we're friends. Can I see the panel and tell me all the secrets and let's talk about stuff? So we had like a half hour conversation. Um, we can talk about that a little bit more next week if we want to, if, you know, depending on what's going on. But I can't spoil anything. But there's, I will say, when you watch the Marvel's Modoc panel, Pay close attention because there's tons of little details in not only the stuff that they show from the show, but also like behind the scenes stuff and mm. stuff behind people's heads and like who the guests on the panel because it's got um, the stars of the show as well. It's it's great. I Lorraine, I don't know if you could see yeah. me, but I built my Modoc section, oh, yeah. which has taken more than a full cube out of this giant <laughs> bookcase behind me. Um, I feel really good. Yeah, I'm excited for people to see that panel because the cast is stacked. It's crazy. We also have a big anniversary this week. Um, Marvel Puzzle Quest is celebrating its seventh anniversary. Uh, kicked off uh, at the beginning of the month on October 1st. It's celebration times through the 12th. Um, just like me, they celebrate their birthday for two weeks, so I get it. <laughs> um but there's a bunch of really cool stuff that's going to come through because of this anniversary. They're really like blowing it out. There are new events like Deadpool's nightly games. There's a new player versus environment events, new hero packs. There's a new Howard the Duck event. Um, but I'm really excited about this new original character, which is Deadpool Spirit of Vengeance. And, uh, I think it's really important to point out that not only is he the spirit of vengeance, but he has a flaming hot taco truck um, because, you know, all ghost writers have something to ride. So clearly Deadpool would have a taco truck. Um, there's like a whole storyline behind it that Deadpool was hired to eliminate this popular taco truck vendor. And when he arrived to do the deed, he's swayed by the hellfire Tex-Mex and, you know, it's uh, amazing. It's wonderful. It's, it's it's hilarious uh, and and really fun. That probably goes in my list of favorite like spirits of vengeance. You know, really <laughs> high up. My favorite is the spirit of vengeance uh, from from way back that rides the woolly mammoth that's also on fire. Oh yeah! So oh my good. god, is that from like Jason Aaron Avengers BC or whatever? Yeah, I think he's he's shown up there, but I think he first uh, it first appeared. Maybe in Jason's run like 10 plus years ago. So good. So good. 
So there's lots of good uh, Deadpoolness. There's a Deadpool Daily Quest, which contains uh, Taskmaster as the Crash of Titans. Yeah, I, there's all kinds of stuff. They they like jam packed this anniversary. It's so good. I love what I remember being at the offices for I believe it's D3 um, for the folks who make. Marvel Puzzle Quest, when they turned the servers on, when they launched the game seven years ago, I think it was, they were around Boston, if I remember, going up there and like being part of that. So good. It's so cool to see how far they've come. I mean, and there's tons more. Like they have covers for the vault for Devil Dinosaur, Howard the Duck, Taskmaster. There's like extra ISO 8. Um, There's going to be stuff every day with hero points, command points, and special offers and free gifts throughout the entire anniversary season. I think if you are a Marvel Puzzle Quest player, this is going to be super great. And if you've never played the game, it's a perfect time because you're going to get loaded up with all kinds of extra goodies. For sure. But there's even more video gameness. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we know that Marvel and Fortnite are doing all kinds of cool stuff in Fortnite's Chapter 2 Season 4. Well, now Wolverine is here. Um, you go through and you can get your hands on unlocking Wolverine. You know that there's Weapon X has been sort of part of the story that, that has been going on. Um, and now with the Battle Pass challenges... You can actually not just get Wolverine, you get Wolverine's trophy, Black Bling, and Ferocious Rap. You get to unlock his outfit. You can complete Wolverine's special request and unlock his built-in snicked emote, which, you know, it's all about the emotes and dancing. I know it is. Uh, You can use that to replace the pickaxe with his classic adamantium claws, and you can swap back and forth between those and the pickaxe anytime. Uh, and there's there's tons more. They're like really cool different styles for the Wolverine gear. So uh, if you like the yellow and blue or the gold and brown, you can have the chance to get those in Fortnite. Yeah. Man, there has been so much cool Marvel merch stuff lately. Tis the season for merch, and there is a new Marvel Coach collab that is so cute. Um, You can look at everything on the Style by Marvel Instagram right now. You know, Coach makes like super duper cute, I mean, designer bags. They're they're not, you know. My mom is. They're not a burlap sack. No, my mom is like only Coach with her handbags. I love it. She's like a fancy lady. But they have a bunch of, of course, really cute um, Marvel coach handbags, but they also have T-shirts and slides and keychains and just all kinds of really cute stuff. Some great shirts. The T-shirts in particular are really cool and like the various different things in there. Oh, man. Um, They got a fanny pack or a bum bag, as the British say, that is so cute with Spider-Man on it. It's like black and white. Oh, man. Coach, send me your bags. Yeah. Send Lorraine your bags. And then uh, let's talk about someone else who should send me stuff, which is the prop (laughs) store for Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because, oh boy, it is time. The Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. auctions are going to be lit. You go to propstore.com slash Marvel, and there's going to be over 550 original props and costumes from across all seven seasons. Bidding started this week, October 8th, and it goes through November 10th, and that is when the auction day happens. Auctions will conclude with an all-day live stream, so mark your calendars for November 10th, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, uh, and that's again propstore.com slash Marvel. Everything that you see there, if you if you actually win one of the auctions, everything's going to come with a certificate of authenticity signed by Joe Casada, aka Marvel's EVP and creative director, and who worked very closely on the show for all seven seasons. You can go in there, even if you're not going to buy something or bid on something, just go in and browse around. Just 
soak it all in. Remember, seven seasons of a uh, really great television show. Ryan, you know what we haven't talked about yet is... What's that? Marvel's Stormbreakers was announced uh, this week, which is this new program in which Marvel has, you know, in the spirit of Stormbreaker uh, and it being given to Beta Ray Bill for being totally worthy and incredible in his own right, Marvel has chosen these eight elite artists to become the next influential artists in Marvel as Marvel Stormbreakers in the spirit of Marvel's Young Gun program. And they've chosen eight incredible artists. But I think we should call up adult boy, director of talent relations, Ricky Purden. Yeah, let's do it. Beep, bop, boop, bop, beep. This is a phone call. Pudding, pudding. Uh, Ricky, are you there? Hey. Hey, it's me. Oh, it's Ricky. Thank Yay! you. Thank you we for having him. me. Ricky, what did you eat for breakfast? Uh, Ritz crackers. Oh, God, that's disgusting. Oh, I'm, so- I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, listen, you know what? There's no rules anymore. Right. We're not confined by the hour of the day to eat what we want. Yeah. We are not confined to wear pants. <laughs> Definitely not. I'm wearing pants, though, just uh, for HR oh, purposes. Same. <laughs> I'm wearing short pants, little pantaloons. <laughs> Everything is going great. Like a fancy lad. Oh, uh, you know, I am the fanciest lad. Uh, Ricky, we need to hear about Stormbreakers and what it is and how it came together. Give us the hot goss. Yeah, yeah. Stormbreakers. Um, really excited about this new initiative. Um, we've been working on it for a while now. You know, Marvel previously had a program called Young Guns, which was, um, you know, every few years we would select six artists roughly who um, exuded, you know, exciting talent that would both make readers pay attention to new books, but also uh, added value to those artists themselves. So when, when those artists were on a project, readers were like, that's important to Marvel. That's a book I have to read. So you're talking about people like Sarah Pichelli and Steve McNiven and Olivia Coipel, like really heavy hitters uh, for Marvel over the years. Um, and so Stormbreakers is a new initiative. It's, it's an evolution of, of Young Guns. We, we refer to them basically as comics, uh, new elite artists. You know, they're, they're the guys who, guys and gals who, um, you know, people will be uh, having to read in, in, the, in the years to come because their, their work is so innovative and exciting and, and different. And, you know, we, we kind of joke too that the Stormbreaker name obviously is the name of Bitter Ray Bill's Hammer. But also, these guys kind of broke away from the white noise storm of the comics industry and have created, you know, looks all their own. Um, so the idea there is that these Stormbreakers really are kind of paving the way for tomorrow for, for new art for Marvel. Um, art's new tomorrow today's. Got it. What? I got there. <laughs> Lorraine just Tomorrow broke. today. You Never mind. It's fine. Listen, it's morning for me. I'm just trying to live a life as a human woman. Loaded up on um, Ritz crackers. <laughs> I got a mouthful of Ritz crackers and I got a question in my heart. Um, <laughs> Ricky, um, there there's a great list of artists. I'm really excited about them. Can you, can you talk us through uh, who the new Stormbreakers are yeah. and uh, a little bit about maybe their style? For each of them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, I'll just start randomly. R.B. Silva is, was already kind of a star after his work on, on Powers of Ten, the new launch of the X-Men line with Jonathan Hickman. He exudes what can be exciting and dynamic and fresh about superhero comics. He's got a tremendous design sense, um, and he's eager to keep pushing himself. 
Josh Kassara, uh, another artist in the X group right now. He's, his style is more gritty and, and, and texture, and he's not afraid to show more savage side of the Marvel Universe. He excels at you know darker uh, emotional stuff, but can do superhero power at the same time. He's working on the X-Force book right now for us. Um, Peach Momoko, um, she's really exciting. She's one of the biggest, most sought-after cover artists in the, in the market right now. Her productivity, too, is uh, very high, while also uh, still being creative with designs. She brings so much from traditional Japanese fine art to her work. Uh, it's just fun. We're going to do some really fun stuff with her in the, in the coming year. Carmen Carnero is another Stormbreaker from Spain. She was kind of a revelation when she returned to Marvel. She had been with Marvel uh, a few years back. And when she came back on X-Men Red, um, everything from her, her, her character acting to her page design, the textures that she uses, she evokes a lot of emotion in her characters and her, her work and a lot of power too. Ricky, you mentioned that Carmen is from Spain. And yep. so Peach is from Japan? Yep. And Arby is from Brazil? Brazil, yep. That's great. So I, I want to keep that in mind because it's really cool because this is such yeah. a global initiative on top of being something that like, there's just so much cool, like so many cool aspects around it. Um, so as you go through them, uh, let us know who, wh- where everyone's from. Uh, Josh, he's from America, right? Josh is from America. Yep. He lives in, he lives in California. That's right. Which is like a foreign country for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, another American artist on the Stormbreaker team is, is Pat Gleason. Pat and I have been friends for a while, so I'm really excited to have him at Marvel, but he's just this perfect cinematic superhero uh, feel to his work. He brings some grunge to it a little bit. He has this ability to draw everything larger than life, and he's shown new powerful dimension to the Marvel Universe and, and Amazing Spider-Man, the book he's been working on so far. Another artist uh, is uh, Juan Cabal, also from Spain. Juan has a more open line style. It, it's kind of deceptively simple, but it gives a feeling of kind of lightness to his work, but it's also very technical in his approach. And that technical aspect gives it gives it a lot of weight. Um, he's grown a lot in the last two years, a lot in the last two years. So I can't wait to see what he evolves into next over the next couple of years too. Natasha Bustos, also a Spanish artist, um, uh, Afro-Brazilian artist. Among the rest of the Stormbreakers, she's more animated in approach, but she's got a long history at Marvel with Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, the, the book that she originated. She designed Moon Girl and had been on much of that book's run. But she's, yeah, innovative in her designs and, and, and playful in her storytelling. Um, but her design work, especially uh, how she com- composes a page, is, is really fascinating. And one more, one more. Iban Coelho. Iban is from, uh, from Spain as well. Iban's got kind of a more kinetic, hyper style to his, his work. His characters leap off the page. His work is exciting. Um, it feels larger than life. And... Really, when you see Iban's work, you can't look away. Like it, it, you have to look at it. Uh, his stuff just pops off the page. So, lots of fun action, but also very uh, emotional moments in his work too. So, yeah, it's a it's a big mix of different kinds of styles, but um, all of them are are pushing the limits of what comic book art can be. Yeah, it was you know it's interesting. I, I saw someone you know CB Sabolsky, our editor in chief for Marvel Comics posted about this this week name drop i know well seeb uh and so (laughs) someone responded to him was like i really wish um i really wish pepe laraz was on this roster and cb was like well pepe was one of the last round of young guns and i think that goes to sort of the point of why you guys are doing this uh from the publishing side is like you you create these programs and you build up these artists and you give them the, the platforms to where pepe is He's got like I I keep thinking about 
Ricky and I, when we used to work at Wizard Magazine, and there would be the hot 10 top 10 artists, artists and writers, writers list. Yeah. And like, I would, I imagine Pepe Larraz in the last year having would be one of the names that we would be putting up on that list going right. further and further to being Rising. towards the top yep. to the point where now he's the main artist on the big the big tentpole issues of the biggest X-Men crossover in a long time and that says a lot of like what he is capable of but also what we've done to build him up so i think you know it's really cool to see the artists that were in the last round of this kind of program and where they are now yeah, the, the, the purpose of the, the Young Guns program before and Stormbreakers going forward is really to make, genuinely to make people say, oh, that artist is on this book. That means I need to read it. This is a big, crazy, important to Marvel, important to continuity, fun, good looking project that I want to I want to check out. We want these artists to have value to themselves, to their names, not just the projects they're working on. It's not just the guy who's on X-Men this month or the guy who's on Wolverine this month. It's, oh, I want to read Iban Coelho's Venom. I want to read Juan Cabal's Guardians of the Galaxy. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, the last round of Young Guns was a lot of fun. This new Stormbreakers um, program is going gonna, is gonna to do new things that Young Guns didn't do before, too. Um, I can't give anything of that nature away, but like, uh, there's lots of fun, weird stuff coming up, and we're just excited to have so many you know, diverse talents as part of it. Um, so where should people keep up with Stormbreakers and everything that's going on with it? Yeah, we're going to have uh, house ads and lots of new announcements of different kinds of, of programs that are tied into the Stormbreakers. But you can definitely check out mob.com slash Stormbreakers uh, for all the news and information about the program. The um, That page, marvel.com slash Stormbreakers, is great because it has like profile it has like pictures of all the artists it has their portfolio where you can see stuff that they've worked on it's got a little different information the countries that they're from all kinds of stuff but they also have photos of each artist yeah. and Juan Cabal's <laughs> is is him in an old-timey diving suit and it like looks a, like a painting like an aquatic thing yeah. yeah that's actually him wow. um yeah so Juan's a character wow it's great yeah. it's really really fun and that, I think that goes to like sort of the the spirit of this it's going to be fun it's going to be exciting and i can't wait to see what everybody you know really puts forward thank you um also i just want to thank peach momoko for taking a headshot that in which she is holding two fudge sickles as if they are sigh <laughs> she said that it was a good day that day when she sent the photo <laughs> with so she's very <laughs> yes she's definitely very fun all of them are you know part of the part of the fun of the program too has been getting to know all of them um we announced the program on a birthday on accident he just got a new cat like getting to know all these artists um, has been so enriching too, because they all like each other's work as well. So like, they're all fans of each other. So I'm excited to see how they kind of grow going forward and, and have this little click of young, talented people. Yay. Yeah. It's great stuff. Awesome. Ricky. Thank you. Um, you can go back to eating your Ritz crackers. No, now. I, Ricky, I, I genuinely you... haven't finished them. They're still, you got to <laughs> eat something. What are you going to have for lunch? I don't know. Probably Taco Bell. Come on, else. Ricky. You're, <laughs> You are my daughter's godfather. If something goes wrong with me or Elizabeth, you need to take care of her and yourself. And if you're eating Ritz crackers and Taco Bell every day, <laughs> I can't have it. Just try to eat a piece of fruit yes. or a vegetable at some point yes. today. That's all we ask. That's all. You got it. That's it. You got it. For right. you. Right. Thanks, Ricky. Thanks, Love you. Thank you. Love you. Bye, Ricky. Bye. Ricky, what a treasure. Just the best a ding dang delight uh and we have 
more delightful folks on the show this week because our guests coming up right now are writers Kyle Higgins and Matt Groom from the brand new Rise of Ultraman comic. This is a fun one, particularly for me as a big uh, tokusatsu and kaiju and Ultraman fan. So we talk about what Ultraman is. So even if you are not like super knowledgeable about all this stuff, I think it's going to be great because we have this new comic book series. I think you'll learn a lot. You'll get to see some insight into what Ultraman is and how long it's been going on hint it's almost 60 years um we're going to talk about the shared history and similarities to marvel and uh so much more Oh, Lorraine, I'm so excited to talk Ultraman, <laughs> and I am so excited to have the writers of The Rise of Ultraman on the show with us. Hi, Kyle. How's it going, dude? Good. And hello, Matt. Hi there. You guys, Ultraman rules so hard. This is so I good. Agree. I've been so yeah. excited about this for so long. We don't hate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it could have It could have been worse. <laughs> Before we get into things, I think, you know... I love Ultraman and Tokusatsu, and I know Lorraine loves that. And when we shared an office together, she would hear me talk about it all the time. Uh, a lot. A lot. <laughs> uh, but let's say some of our listeners to This Week in Marvel are new to, or they think they're new to these characters and these genres. Can you first tell us a little bit about who and what Ultraman is, and then a little bit about what Tokusatsu is? Um, I think we should maybe we do it in the reverse order because I think they're actually quite interconnected. I mean, Ultraman is kind of the OG of Tokusatsu, um, connected there with Godzilla as well. The term actually means special effects or a special way of filming. And so in the 50s and the 1960s, the idea of miniature scale monsters, i.e., Actors in suits being juxtaposed against. Wait, mi- what? Miniature. I don't want to totally burst your bubble here. What? <laughs> They're real good suits, but um, oh. there is there is a, a an actually um, a, a long history and artistry behind shooting regular sized people to make them look giant. Uh, it's something that I actually, as a filmmaker, I've I've been fascinated by for many many years. And actually, Matt and I talked about this at one point. Like, when you think about when Ultraman came out in 1966, and I'm going to let Matt jump in to actually kind of break down the giant of light here in a second. But it had only been a few years, really, that they had figured out how to move the camera on a TV show. So moving the camera may not sound like a big deal. It is a feat unto itself, especially in that era. But moving the camera in a way that also doesn't break the illusion of, hey, this is a guy in a suit, but it's at, you know, sixth scale or whatever it is. So the buildings are very miniature. Like you see this a lot with water, with with pyrotechnics, things like that. It's actually very hard to convey scale with naturally occurring phenomenon like waves and, and smoke and things like that. You actually have to shoot at a, at a, at a much higher frame rate to give those naturally occurring kind of phenomenon the the weight that they require in order to sell as being much larger than they actually are. So it's it, the show was so ahead of its time in so many ways. And it's so cool also to me that to this day, they still shoot people in suits. It's a stagecraft. But as far as the subject matter of Ultraman in particular, I think I think this is a great time for Matt to, to jump in here. I think what I really appreciate about... Ultraman and what Ultraman brought to Tokusatsu was Ultraman was really completing, to my mind, 
a very important puzzle. Because I think if you start with Godzilla, which Mr. Super Eye, who created Ultraman, worked on, there was the giant monster. There was the terror that represented the ways in which we'd sort of gone off track as a society and the consequences of that. And then the first TV show that Mr. Super Eye created was called Ultra Q, which came just before Ultraman, which was about humans trying to grapple with and understand the unknown and the darkness. And then in introducing Ultraman, he brought in the idea of a hero that could inspire us to face that darkness, who could show us the way to rise up and and fight back against the sort of evil that we've brought upon ourselves in a lot of ways. So I, I think that it is a really beautiful counterbalance to all of the darkness in, that is in like Kaiju and Tokusatsu inherently. And it brings a lot of, I think, what we might recognize a little bit more as a superhero story into it. And then I think from Ultraman, it influenced so much of, of popular media. I think even if you haven't heard the term Tokusatsu, you think you might not have seen it before, you've absolutely seen stuff that's been heavily inspired by it. You, you've watched a lot of, say, Evangelion, or you've seen it directly in watching Power Rangers and not really had any idea that you're watching 50% of a Japanese TV show. <laughs> so it, it's really, I think, influenced a lot of lives, perhaps a little unconsciously. And I think that with this, it, it is a chance for us to help maybe bring people a bit more direct awareness of what it is and give them some appreciation for where so much of what they love actually came from. Yeah, and one of the really cool and exciting things to us about doing Ultraman at Marvel is that while on the surface it may not appear like there's much commonality there between Ultraman and Marvel superheroes, if you think about the history of the Marvel characters and how the universe and the characters were were really all created on the idea of flaws and in a relatable fashion, right? Like Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility, Daredevil, Justice is blind. Like they have screwed up, they make mistakes and then they become even better heroes as a result of the way that they rebound from those mistakes and they learn from them. They become better versions of themselves. The ultras aren't here to save us as a species. They are here to help us become the best version of ourselves so we can save ourselves. And through that lens, there's actually quite a bit of commonality between, I think, the Ultras and the Marvel heroes in a way that, you know, you look at something like DC, and I love the DC characters, but they are the gods that we look up to, um, whereas the Marvel characters are more the titans that we could be. And so that was something that we were trying to look at our adaptation of Ultraman through the lens of when we first approached this book. I mean, it's interesting because I, if you kind of think about both genres, the boom of superheroes in the Silver Age of Marvel Comics kind of happening around the same time that this sort of world is starting to be built up. But I'm curious for you guys, because it does have such a long legacy, what was your entry point into this world? Well, actually... So mine was Power Rangers um, when I was eight years old, not knowing, as Matt just spoke to, that it was one half of a Japanese tokusatsu show, Super Sentai. I actually didn't really discover Super Sentai and Kamen Rider and then Ultraman until Matt and one of his best friends, Michael, when I was doing Power Rangers. So I actually blame Matt for uh, not only my discovery of, but then exploration of 
this genre that I've definitely become a fan of. I think it has been a real journey of discovery, though, because as much as sort of we came in that way and we've slowly made our way into the world, there's still so much for us to see and so much for us to learn. And I think particularly with Ultraman, part of that is that Ultraman wasn't a major part of what you might call Western media for for decades because of some pretty inside baseball rights issues. So you had to be a pretty dedicated fan to seek it out. But now there's an opportunity to bring Ultraman to everybody in a in a pretty big way. And I think it, it is exciting for us to be able to be a part of that and have the opportunity to do that and also learn along the way with everybody else. Like we've obviously spent a lot of time researching. There's decades and decades and decades of Ultraman history and we have really immersed ourselves into it, but it is also a process of discovery. And as we discover it, we're able to pull out the bits that really get us incredibly excited and then share it with an audience that is not super familiar with it, which is always what you want. You always want to be showing people something that's either new or at least new to them. And then for us, our challenge is finding a way to put our own spin on it and make it meaningful and relevant to the present moment. Yeah, I mean, this isn't this isn't a reboot. It's not a reinvention. It's, it's kind of a remix. Um, there are definitely a lot of new aspects that Matt and I are bringing to the table, particularly as it relates to the kind of central metaphor that Kaiju represent in this uh, version of of Ultraman. But beyond that, I mean, part of the fun, as you can see in issue one, is it, it opens with a scene that is straight out of the 1966 pilot, except it does not go the way that you expect it to go. It's not even the same character, actually, as it was in the pilot. I mean, what happens in the opening of The Rise of Ultraman number one actually happened to Shin Hayata in the 1966 pilot. And now we're saying it actually happens to Dan Moroboshi in our book. So it's it's this balance between being incredibly accessible, but also being um, respectful to what had come before and celebrating it as well. But at the same time, we wanted you to be able to read issue one if you had absolutely no prior knowledge um, and for it to work on its own. That that's been that's been so much of the fun for us, and and we've been you know so supported by Tom Brevoort and Alana Smith and Martin Bureau, and then Jeff Gomez of Starlight Runner and uh, Danny Simon of the Licensing Group, and then some of the representatives from Subaraya. It's been very empowering for us to come in and and really bring kind of the Marvel take to this very beloved franchise. What's fascinating to me is just the Marvelness of it all in so many ways. You know, we've talked about some of them, but just the way the show evolves or even the connections that Marvel has to Tokusatsu in the Super <laughs> Sentai series and, and like the history of Japanese Spider-Man and the uh-huh. way that like it it's it's so magnificent to me that the fact that this has been going on for 60 years and that we're now bringing these more officially together with Marvel and and Subaraya. And then you know, you guys mentioned EJ Subaraya who, if you think about creators, right, and you think about people who are bringing their visions and creating characters and worlds, and, and at Marvel we have Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and 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 you know so many creators. EJ Subaraya is is on on the level of like you know having built part of the foundation for building so many of these things. It's absolutely it's so cool, man. I just I love this it, stuff. I geek out for this. It is so cool. And I think, too, these 
two elements have been circling each other for decades. Like I know that, that Stan Lee was a big fan of tokusatsu and was always looking for ways to bring it to the West. Yeah. And there's so much of that respect on the other end as well. Uh, the people at Super Riot like love Marvel and they're very, what, what they really articulated very early on was that they want us to bring the Marvel spirit to Ultraman. They're very protective of what Ultraman means and they want to make sure that that's kept and that's represented, but they want it to be Marvel as well. So on both ends, there's that incredible passion for either side and being right here at this juncture point where these two incredibly storied legacies come together. It's, it's a real privilege and it's very exciting. Yeah. And just like, I, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by Japanese Spider-Man. Like, I think that <laughs> I <laughs> love best. that. Yeah. I yeah. love that so much. And I love ha- that that even happened. I was aware of it as a kid, but I didn't realize how bonkers it gets um, and how much we can really attribute the rise of, of Zords and Mechas and, and uh, giant robots, basically, in Super Sentai to Japanese Spider-Man. And, and that's actually one of the things that I think is so cool here is much in the way that, like, Spider-Man was adapted, was taken from here and is adapted by a different culture. We're, in, a, in, a, in some ways, kind of doing the same thing here in that Matt and I are adapting Ultraman for... Marvel Comics, you know, and so the fact that there is a, a history there of almost kind of like not trading assets, but like looking for different takes on, you know, very beloved characters across cultures is really cool to me. Yeah, that's such a an interesting point, because it's like, how do you take a character with such a massively popular, you know, like huge name. And then also there's there's like a huge American audience that does not have the same familiarity yet with Ultraman. How are you kind of um, bringing him West? <laughs> well, I think it's about taking a lot of the central ideas and the central metaphor there and then figuring out how you can make that more of a Marvel story. And, and Kyle talked a little bit before about how Marvel characters are kind of defined by their flaws and then how we overcome them. But Ultraman is a story about a giant of light coming to Earth and showing the people the way forward. And I think the moment it really clicked for us is if we think about the people of Earth collectively as a Marvel protagonist, as the people who are flawed but have something great inside them that can come out if they're able to reckon with it and own their flaws and find a better way of living. So I think once we had that sort of idea there, we were able to start building it out. And because there's like the decades and decades of, of, of mythology there, figuring out what parts worked really well with that, what parts perhaps not, and how can we present this all in a way that captures the spirit of what was there originally, but will feel authentic and meaningful to people who have no connection with it at all. And I think that's um, some of the more heartening responses we've seen now that issue one is out is people who have no understanding or connection to Ultraman being able to go like, oh yeah, okay, like I'm I'm in, I'm ready for this journey. And I, I think it really, it's just a testament to the fact that there is so much amazing there and we had so much great material to work with that it'll resonate with everyone. I think it really is cross-cultural and our job is really just finding the the precise right way to make sure that we can break down the barriers so that all of that greatness can <laughs> come through mm-hmm. everybody. The whole book, I mean, is it's beautiful also. It's just really stunning. Um, Francisco Mana's work is 
gorgeous yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. What was it like um, working with him to really capture? I mean, it, it really captures that style, I think, so well. The two things that I think were really important for the book was the incredible sense of scale and that that sci-fi power. But then the other part of it that was really important was the the human emotion, the drama. The Ultraman is, it is the Ultra and it is the man. And if you don't have both halves, it's not going to work. It can be really showy, but not resonant and compelling. And it can be resonant and compelling, but then the, the huge scale of it looks hokey. And Francesco just knocked both parts absolutely out of the park, which was a a massive relief. And yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to have him. Yeah. Well, and uh, just to echo that, you know, what I was saying a, a little while at the start of this, just about the kind of craft that goes into making normal things look giant, right? Um, that applies in comics as well. And, and while, you know, it may sound like totally obvious that like, if you're going to be the artist on Ultraman, you really got to be able to draw stuff that looks huge. It's quite challenging. One of countless reasons I don't draw for a living. And I describe what I do as telling people much more talented than me what to draw. But if you think about breaking down a page, you're having to convey scale and, and scope across not just one image, but multiple images and lead the eye, lead the reader through the page as well. And like, if you skimp on backgrounds, for example, like it, compl- it could completely destroy the illusion. So it really is this like fine balancing act of like, okay, when, when a monster, when a kaiju goes huge or Ultraman goes huge, like our camera angles, our backgrounds, our foreground elements, like those are all very important to consider so that the effect is, oh, wow, that dude's like 100 feet tall, you know? And Francesco just, it, it's, we're very privileged here because we've been able to see him grow throughout this miniseries. And I mean, he came in on issue one and just hit the ground running. Like Francesco, I loved his work before this that I had seen on some Avenger stuff and some Spider-Man stuff. But Ultraman is, he's really kind of kicked it into a new gear. Francesco and then like beautiful colors and a, like Espen, a, a, yeah. a certain yeah, the yeah, colors Espen's are so good. So yeah. good. And there's a texture to them that really adds such a, a wonderful feeling to the book. Do you have any that each of you have any favorite ultras, any favorite kaiju stuff? Not necessarily that, you know, you're, you're hinting at what's going to be in the series just as a fan as, or is your research just what you come across? Uh, so far for me, I, I really like I really like seven ultra seven and um in Ultraman Ace. And then there are there are many a evening where we throw G-chat messages back and forth about kaiju we weren't aware of and then immediately have fallen <laughs> in love with. So there's there's quite a few of those. I, I, I have this thing where my favorite ultra or my favorite kaiju is whatever the one I happen to be writing in that moment because you have to. That's you know, a cop out yeah. answer, man. Come on, <laughs> I, I, but I, I was leading to an actual answer. I promise. Okay. Um, right. So <laughs> I'm not going to say like who my favorite is right now because I think that would be that would spoil some things. But I think Pigmon was a character that I couldn't help but absolutely fall head over heels for, and then being able to, you know, put our own spin on it and craft a little unique relationship for Pigmon ourselves. Uh, is, yeah, I think just so close to my heart now. Wait, I have, a, like, potentially the most important question <laughs> that's I'm ever so, existed. I am so ready. <laughs> uh, and with literally no buildup after that, 
So my question is, um, in the spirit of great team-ups, who's the ultra and who's the man oh, in your boy. pairing? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I, we both know the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Matt and I are very different writers, and we have very different influences and taste, but in the spirit of the things that make us different are the things that make us better. When we work together, finding the balance is actually not only quite a bit of fun because we both trust each other so implicitly mm -hmm. and we respect each other so much, but it also means that, let me put it this way, only one of us has written Bucky Barnes like out killing ex-Hydra you know, people. Matt is definitely the ultra of, of the two of us, would be my opinion. We may have an argument now off air about this, but I, <laughs> but I do feel like Matt has a, a kind of a calmness about him and a very almost like zen-like approach to not only storytelling, but life as far as trying to just constantly be a better person. And I'm constantly just trying to be an awful person. So it really, <laughs> no, I'm being slightly facetious here, but but no, like I, I do come from a little bit more of a kind of like, um, a little more like, uh, it's about the verisimilitude, it's about more, I come from screenwriting and directing, so it's a, it's a little bit more, uh, I'm more about like people never say what they actually mean. And, and I don't wanna say a more cynical approach, but I, I definitely have a, a little bit more of a kind of groundedness to like, I like crime fiction, you know, I like, I like noir. I learned so much doing Power Rangers and, and I've become more comfortable as I've gotten a little older with, with two important things as a writer, optimism and ambiguity. But at the same time, like sometimes that isn't as intrinsic to me about like, well, why don't we write the story about the big, bright, hopeful thing? You know, and I was like, yeah, but how do we like tear that hopeful thing down? You know, so um, <laughs> so I, I think that I think we're actually a very nice balance for each other. But yeah, I'm definitely like the, the awful man part of Ultraman. <laughs> and Matt is the inspirational like ultra I wish I could aspire to be. I would certainly agree with that. I, I would perhaps <laughs> oh, be thanks. slightly more charitable, leave out the awful part. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. But yeah, I think you, you, there's... And again, I think it comes back to what you need for Ultraman. You need the scale and the perspective and you need the the details, you know, and I think I can certainly have my heads up, head up in the cloud a little bit and I'm looking a thousand miles away at what could be and where we could be headed and, and what it could all mean. And and then uh, I'm like, yeah, but what's, what do they talk about, Matt? Like, what's the actual scene, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, yeah, we being, bring two very important things each to, to the equation there. So you're both the ultra, got it. Oh, <laughs> depends oh nice. On the, it depends on the day of the week. Matt's also like 17 <laughs> hours ahead. He's in Australia. So I think based on time zone rules, Matt, we both can be the same thing at different parts of the day because it's not the same Look, part. We're going to have to have sure a, a long sit down conversation about mm -hmm. ultra science and how that relates to time. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, put, we'll put together a new keynote for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got all this stuff, all the, the, the cool aspects you talked about, but just so everybody's clear listening to this, there's also big action, big superhero, cool stuff, big monsters. It is, uh, it's a big 
knock down drag out at times with lots of cool underlying elements and um aspiration which i think is something that is really important for all marvel stories and marvel related stories yeah i think it's really important to us all right now as well i think and that's where that was a big part of when we were breaking the series it <laughs> it wasn't terribly hard to find the the darkness that the kaiju could sort of represent in our world unfortunately but it also gave us a lot of avenues to figure out like how how do we overcome the darkness how can we be better people specifically in this time like what's our path forward now so it, it felt very timely while still being true being to timeless yeah but be timeless absolutely yeah yeah i mean that that's a thing like the what what without spoiling it what the kaiju represent in our series um and the kind of central metaphor there or allegory it is intrinsic to itself it's not you know there there's a deeper meaning there if you want to look for it but it is consistent with its own world and so that was something that i know like was really exciting to me was that it was an opportunity to reframe it in a way that is resonant right now um, while also being um, very consistent in the foundation that we were building for this version of um, Ultraman and the Ultras and, you know, the Kaiju Crisis. This is good stuff. It's, it's, it's got positive vibes and also punching. Yeah, well, and, that's, <laughs> and, you know, that's the thing. Like, for as much as I was saying with a smirk a few minutes ago, like, about being dark and cynical and things like that as, as a person... What I would say is like that that's actually one of my favorite parts about having discovered the larger genre of tokusatsu. And, and like I said, like I really started with something like Power Rangers, which is tokusatsu adjacent. But I think when you start out as a, as a younger writer, you want your plots to be clockwork and you want things to be super grounded and edgy because that's the only way it'll feel real, you know. And then as you get a little more experienced, for me anyway, it, it became about like, yeah, but I, I want to write things that are aspirational. I do want to write things that are about what is possible and what we can achieve and like, you know, things that are very humanistic. And I think so much of that for me, like I said, like when I did Rangers, like I couldn't have done the Rangers run I did even five years earlier, even three years earlier, probably. Um, it would have been very different. And similarly with Ultraman, like I would not be able to, do Ultraman right now, A, without Matt, and B, if I had not done three years of Power Rangers. So, like, things happen when they should happen, um, and I just feel very, very fortunate that this was an opportunity that came up, and the partnership with Subarai and Marvel happened when it happened, um, and, you know, I was, I was the person that Tom reached out to. And we're thankful for all of that. We're thankful yeah. for, uh, for Ultraman being around, because without Ultraman... None of this would be possible right now. Kyle, <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Matt, congrats on, on, you know, your first Marvel work. Hopefully many more to come. Yeah, how and cool Kyle's is that? Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah, talk right? about like, that. let's talk about that for half a second. <laughs> this, is, this is Matt's first Marvel book. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, I think having your first ever work at Marvel uh, feature and Alex Ross cover is, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think... Feels unfair in a lot of ways. <laughs> I didn't get it's my first so, Alex Ross for ten years, Matt. Yeah, I really uh, skipped to the head of the queue on that one, so I feel <laughs> remarkably privileged for many reasons, but that being one of them. 
Very cool, guys. Uh, thanks so much. And everybody listening, Rise of Ultraman is out right now. Get it from your local comic shop or uh, the Marvel app. Go read Rise of Ultraman. It's, as Ryan loves to say, a ding-dang delight. <laughs> That's a triple D. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. If anything, Ultraman is a triple D. <laughs> uh. It is the Triple D of uh, Ultraman comics for sure. Uh, so it is time to Wait, start looking ahead. Wait, is that Driver's and Drives? Uh, ding, dang, delight. Triple D. Triple D is Driver's Dine. Dive. Ding, dang, delight is officially Triple D here on This Week in Marvel. Bite us, Guy Fieri. <laughs> Don't <laughs> no, actually, Guy Fieri is so great. He's the best. He's, He's so like sweet. just a sweet baby angel. And he does good things for the world. So true. We we should all be a little bit more like Guy Fieri. What would Guy Fieri do? Percy and Zachary, let's get Guy Fieri on the show. I'm sure he's a Marvel fan. I would love to actually, I would love you to know, talk to him. Our pal, Justin, is pals with Guy Fieri. So Boom. I feel like we could make this happen. I think that's a good idea. He could be a future guest. But next week's guest is Corey Taylor, who is the singer for the band Slipknot. Uh, and he actually has a brand new solo record out. So we're going to talk to him about music and his love of comics. He's like hardcore. <laughs> He's a hardcore Marvel comics guy. He knows some deep, deep stuff. So that's going to be a fun one to check out next week. But we have a great question of the week. Isn't that right, Lorraine? Yeah, we want to know what is your favorite music to read comics to? I like to listen to some cinematic music to make me like feel like I'm in it. But also, because you know I'm all in on spooky season, I've just been listening to a lot of horror tracks, like the background music from horror films, which is really good to read comics to. Yes, a hundred percent. So I will, I will kind of second that. Um, I there's so we talked about John Carpenter earlier in the show. John Carpenter's music for yeah. his movies, the very synthy, spooky, weird stuff, is sort of the basis for. My general, like, I just need to put on music to get into any kind of, like, creative or or driving headspace. And so that sort of synthy, retro, synthwave type stuff um, is pretty much what I listen to. I have a 510-song playlist that I've curated over the last couple of years of stuff that is, like, classic from Carpenter time period or even modern John Carpenter stuff, to current new stuff, there's a band called Perturbator, which is just so good and perfect for this spooky season. That's what I read comics to. Yeah, I love that. Um, you can tweet us your answers using the hashtag This Week in Marvel. You can email them to us at twimpodcast at marvel.com, or you can message them to us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisweekinmarvel. Yeah, first up on our community section for this week for folks who've tweeted us and Facebooked us is from Karis Pollard at A. Karis Pollard. Uh, first things first, I want to say, Karis, congratulations on the new house. Oh, she and her yay. wife just uh, moved into their new flat, and it's daunting to do all that, but um, they did it, and it's great, and I'm so proud and happy for her. Um, Karis says her This Week in Marvel goes to Falcon and the Winter Soldier by Landy Vincenti and Mila. This was genuinely funny, but also quite deep and thought-provoking if you let it be. The art helps, the facial acting in this is superb, and a spit-your-tea-out ending. The book is real good. Love a spit-take. 
Yeah. Um, Benny Dales sent us a message saying, Hello, my name is Benny Dales. Uh, I have been collecting comics since November of last year. Would have loved to have started sooner, but with the area I live in, there's only one comic book store and it's 45 minutes away from my home. Anywho, I greatly appreciate everything you all do. Thank you all very, very much for the marvelous content. P.S. Star-Lord is the goat. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> and then Benny also included a couple of photos uh, from his uh, original issues of X-Force and Executioner Song in the bags, which I will say, kudos to you, because I remember walking to the comic book shop as a child and buying those comics because they had trading cards in mm-hmm. them. And the oh, I can smell them now going to Gotham Manor to the comic book shop near me as a kid and buying those. Benny, thank you for the Facebook message. And I'm so glad uh, you found us and you're reading comics and you're excited. We're excited to have you. It's pretty great. Um, and that that one's on Facebook. And then we got another one from Jenny Huang on Facebook who uh, thanked us for reading the her post last week. But also she wants to tell us to eat some moon cakes. They're very tasty. I think I've had moon cakes. Lorraine, do you ever go to the the actual restaurant in New York called Mooncake? No, I don't think so. two of them. Yeah, I don't know if they're still around anymore. It was like, you know, fast foodie Asian stuff. It was really, really good. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I have been there. The one There's one um, down on like 30th or 31st or something. It's like all the way on the west side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really good. Um, and I feel like I've eaten, maybe I just, my brain is saying, yes, you've eaten at Mooncake, not necessarily that you have eaten a Mooncake. Let me tell you, I I am dying to go to Chinatown and go to a bakery. Oh, like, yes. honestly, after reading Shang-Chi, I was like, I can't believe that that's not available to me right now because I, I am living far away now. But man, get me to a bakery. Oh, have you mm. been to The Spot? It is a Japanese uh, like dessert place in Manhattan. There's one in Koreatown and then there's one down um, in the village on St. Mark's. Holy butts, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. They have a cookie skillet that will literally <gasps> knock your dang socks off. They have, what? I know you like a cookie too. They have um, like this little dessert that's like, um, like pudding and cookie and whatever, but it looks like a plant and they serve it in like a little terracotta pot. It is so cute. Oh my wow. God. <gasps> they got honey toast <laughs> with ice cream. Let uh, this week in Japanese desserts with Lorraine Sink uh, get get after me. Literally anyone who will give me Japanese desserts. If, if we were not a corporate podcast and we had our a Patreon, that would be one hundred percent one of our Patreon shows. I want to, you know how there's that girl who puts her face on bread on YouTube. I want to no. be like, yep, that's a thing. Um, I want to be a girl who puts her face on desserts. Huh. Well, with that in mind, that's a wrap for this episode of This Week in Marvel, which was produced by Percy Verlin, Zachary Goldberg, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Cables Cables. Need a USB that can take you back to 1993? Try Cables Cables. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And this is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs> 